Listener Production. What are forever chemicals and how do we get rid of them? I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto and this is The Science Briefing, a podcast about the science of everything. PFAS are a big and complex group of chemicals, sometimes called the forever chemicals. They're found in a bunch of everyday products, Tupperware, cookware, to fabrics and carpets. Concern is growing over just how widespread they are and the impact they could have on the environment and us, humans. Today, how dangerous are the forever chemicals? Ellen, I want to start with this nickname, the forever chemicals. How did these PFAS substances earn this nickname? It's a pretty fitting nickname, really. These are substances that don't really break down in the environment and they're thought to sometimes possibly never degrade. Ellen Fidian is a science journalist for Cosmos magazine. We've been able to detect PFAS all around us. They've been detected in all corners of the globe, places like the Arctic, in Tibet, in Antarctica, and they're not going anywhere. Okay, so what are PFAS exactly? PFAS refers to a range of different substances. They're synthetic chemicals, so they've been made by people. They don't occur naturally. PFAS is an acronym. It stands for per- and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. There are a few bits of chemical nomenclature in there, some confusing (laughs) science words in there, so let's break it down. Fluorinated means they contain the element fluorine. The per or poly means that there are a lot of fluorine atoms. Okay. The alkyl means carbon atoms kind of in a chain. It's worth noting that carbon-fluorine bond because it's a very, very strong chemical bond and it's really hard to break. So it's the thing that makes PFAS so hardy as a compound. Mm -hmm. They were first made in the 1940s and we've made many, many more over that time. So we've now got these chemicals numbering in the thousands. There's actually about 9,000 different PFAS compounds, kind of depending on how you define PFAS. What are PFAS typically used for? They're really effective and very versatile. So they're found in a huge range of different things. They're used to make some products water, stain and heat resistant. So food packaging, clothing, dental floss. They're also used in cookware because they're heat resistant. They're really handy for making um, non-stick pots and pans. So Teflon is a type of PFAS. Okay. They can also make textiles and other products water and stain resistant. And they're also used in firefighting foams, so they can be found in fire extinguishers. So there are lots and lots of practical uses for them. But over time, there's been some concerns growing about just how widespread PFAS has become and the way PFAS have bled into the world around us. So scientists are now starting to look deeper into the dangers that this can pose for both us as humans and the environment at large. Right, so what are some of the dangers associated with PFAS? So let's take a look at the effect it can have on humans first. I think it's really important to note that we don't have an exact understanding of the public health impacts of PFAS, but there's a lot of research looking into what these effects might be and PFAS that might exist in our bodies. Oh. Yeah, so PFAS can get into our bodies either through drinking water or through eating food. Some studies in the US have suggested that more than 98% of the population has PFAS in their bodies. 
That said, PFAS haven't been shown to directly cause any specific diseases in humans. Right. There are results in studies from non-human animals, so typically mice, that give us some insight into the health issues. So these mouse studies have linked PFAS with health problems like increased risk of certain cancers, increased cholesterol, uh, lower immunity sometimes. Mm -hmm. Now, because they're animal studies, not all research in animals translates to us. And kind of complicating this is the fact that there are just so many PFAS around and it's kind of hard to tell which specific PFAS might do what. Sure. But one of the biggest research areas in PFAS came out earlier this year, and it won't surprise you to know what the topic was. It suggested that higher PFAS exposure may make people more vulnerable to COVID-19 and also possibly reduce the efficacy of COVID vaccines. Wow. Okay. So what is the link here between PFAS and more vulnerability to COVID-19? There are four different studies that supported this theory. The overarching theory is that because PFAS are known to be immunotoxic, so they affect your immune system, exposure to PFAS could hinder your ability to fight COVID-19 and specifically the body's ability to produce plasma. Plasma is what generates antibodies to fight off an infection, like COVID-19, and according to one researcher from Harvard, PFAS compounds appear to affect key molecules in that process. This is still really early research, and the scientists and the researchers across all of these different studies say that they really need more research done to confirm their findings. So we're still piecing together the health impacts associated with PFAS. Let's look at PFAS in the environment. I mean, how does it get there and and what are the implications? The first entry of PFAS into the environment is through waste streams and industrial leakages. So humans using products with PFAS in them, if they throw them away, it ends up sort of leaching into the environment. And because they don't break down, they can spread very, very far. One of the main concerns is PFAS soaking into the ground after rainfall. So PFAS can get into the soil and then end up in the groundwater. So then that contaminates the groundwater, which is used for irrigation, sometimes drinking water. Ultimately, groundwater gets back to the sea. Mm -hmm. This has been shown with sites where historically firefighting foams containing PFAS have been used. So that's caused contamination. Another environmental concern associated with PFAS is that they might do this thing called bioaccumulation. So say that there's a very low concentration of PFAS in a grass, which is then eaten by a bug, which is then eaten by a bird, which is then eaten by a dingo. PFAS stays in the food chain at each level and also possibly enters it at each level. So that means that by the time it gets to the dingo, it's much more concentrated. And what happens with PFAS in the environment ultimately does come back to us because we're in the environment and we have a greater exposure to PFAS, for example, say eating fish in PFAS-contaminated waters. That said, scientists are doing a lot of good work finding ways to hopefully remove PFAS from the environment, maybe forever. Right. So how can we de-forever these chemicals? I mean, I thought they were called forever chemicals for a reason, Ellen. While PFAS are incredibly difficult to break down, we do actually have some ways to remove them from water and soils. Earlier this year, a PFAS water treatment plant opened in Catherine, which is a town in the Northern Territory. Catherine's actually a really interesting example because there was this class action case led by Catherine residents who were exposed to water contaminated with PFAS. And as a result, this water treatment plant's been introduced. 
So this particular plant is what's called an iron exchange water treatment plant. So basically they use a special resin to absorb the PFAS out of the water. It doesn't destroy the PFAS necessarily, but it does remove it from the environment and places it in the resin. And I'm assuming then, Ellen, the resin is a byproduct. What can we do with the resin? Correct. You can incinerate PFAS contaminated resin. It is very expensive and it takes up a lot of energy. And PFAS are also very heat resistant and resistant to being burned, like they used in firefighting foams a lot of the time. So it's not always easy. There's other research that's looking at immobilizing PFAS in soils using activated carbon. So basically, adding substances to soil that stick to the PFAS and then prevent it from moving or getting into animals and plants. There are other possible methods. Some scientists are working on bacteria that can break them down. Some of the most recent findings released in August looked at breaking down PFAS into mostly harmless compounds using sodium hydroxide, which is lye. It's a cheap compound that we use in soap. So there's a really huge range of different methods. None of them are immediate solutions. None of them are permanent solutions, but they are all a step in the right direction. Ellen, it seems like a case of humans yet again having developed something that is near indestructible and now we're reeling trying to figure out a way to get rid of it. Is a PFAS-free future actually realistic? It's kind of tricky to tell because finding alternatives to PFAS for use can be difficult. Whether or not there are alternatives really depends on the specific item you're talking about. So Teflon, there isn't really a nonstick coating that works as effectively as a PFAS. Other stuff, it's much easier. There's no particular reason we need PFAS in greaseproof packaging, for instance. There is a reason these PFAS are everywhere. Like I've said, they're incredibly durable and they're incredibly effective substances. So people who are making stuff with PFAS in them might not be that quick to turn their practices around and change to a less effective compound or a more expensive one. But as the science improves, we could be finding more permanent solutions and at least dealing with the PFAS that is currently in the environment and the stuff that we're being exposed to. So we could be targeting certain sites or areas where we know that there will be more PFAS bleeding into the environment. If we can't get rid of PFAS altogether, we can do our best to break down what's there already. That being said, Ellen, I mean, you have an honours degree in chemistry. How worried do you think we should be about PFAS? So I think it's really understandable that people would be concerned about the contaminants in their environment. And, you know, people talk a lot about the chemicals that are found in X, Y and Z. And absolutely, we should be tracking it and learning more about the health effects. But I don't think it's necessarily something that we have to panic about. There's often a lot of real fear around nebulous toxins that occur in the environment. And I think it's much smarter to look at the individual contaminants and see what they actually are and if they actually are having an effect on human health. Ellen Fidian is a science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. You can read more of Ellen's reporting at cosmosmagazine.com. This episode was based on an article by Matilda Hansley Davis. That article is called, What are PFAS? The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe. Mixing by Dave Stein. 
Our executive producer is Melanie Withnall. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time. Thank you.